0: Just as, and let me say that this in that context, maybe it puts it more in perspective about the church. We should be so thankful to the God who gave us an end-time church to understand what is going on, that he called us out of this world and gave us such important and precious knowledge so that we'd have some direction in these troubling times that are upon us and coming more rapidly upon us, and yet we began to take it for granted, just as the people of this nation, including us, have taken for granted what God gave us. We've just accepted it, and it's ours, and we have departed from God. As a nation, and we did not totally depart from God as a church, but we were lukewarm about it, and we went through the motions but there wasn't the fervency and the fire and the heat that God wants to see in us. And he blew the church apart, just as he is now, before our very eyes blowing our nation apart. And this is not going to be fun nor pretty. But if we revive ourselves spiritually, or allow him to revive us more accurately, he will save us out of the holocaust that is about to descend upon us. So there is much to be hopeful for. If we will be what we're supposed to be before God, he will use us then to straighten out this nation. And We all sit around and express our woe, our concern over the nation around us. We see what's happening and we see the sinfulness of our people and we'd like to help. I hate to see America going down in flames, don't you? Even Jeremiah says if there was some way we could help, we would. But there's nothing we can do until God does his thing. Now I'm going to go on today with the series I've started on honoring God as the Creator because really this is what it's all about is turning to God the Creator with our hearts. That is done with us, and with our people, as they go through what is coming, then God will make it all right. Let's start today by going back a bit. We went through some Psalms before Pentecost on this, but I want to go back to Exodus 20 because this is where God gave the Ten Commandments to Israel, His people, as He brought them out of slavery. These commandments are still very much in effect today. They represent God and what he is in a very short few paragraphs. But there's a command here, which I want to focus on a bit, chapter 20 and verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work. You don't do it. On the Sabbath. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the eternal your God. In it you shall not do any work, you nor your son nor your daughter, your manservant nor your mainservant nor your cattle nor the stranger that is within your gates. That's pretty inclusive, isn't it? God means it when he says to keep the Sabbath. Now notice verse 11, what he hearkens back to. For in six days the Eternal made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Eternal blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. It is set apart as holy time. We're instructed in other places not to think our own thoughts, to do our own pleasures, Isaiah 58. We're instructed not to buy or sell on the Sabbath, to do those things that we do in life to support ourselves, to increase ourselves, even pleasure. And it isn't just idle time to play golf, let's say. No, you're not working. But the Sabbath command goes to a lot of things. It's something that is to be hallowed, holy, Set aside, rest from our emotions, our feelings, our work a day, our play, and look to God, our Creator. And as part of the Sabbath command, he points back at creation. I am the Creator, and this is a day set aside by me, he says, for us to look to him, to think about him to perhaps sit back and enjoy the creation He has made, uh, to meditate on it, to sit and look at trees and flowers and grass and appreciate what God has done. Because in this creation around us, we see God. We'll see that a little clearer as we go on. We need something, some way, to understand and to see God better. And he has given us a Sabbath to help us get that perspective. Now notice in Exodus 31, I want to begin in verse 16. Wherefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations for a perpetual covenant, a covenant that will never go away. It can't be changed. It has to be the seventh day, because it is a memorial. Why do people keep the 4th of July as a memorial? Because that's the day the Declaration of Independence was signed. A memorial is observed on the day that the event occurred, so that you do not forget that. Now, God has put the Sabbath day, every seven days, for a perpetual covenant between him and his people. He says, it is a sign or a signal between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Eternal made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Now, our so-called Christian nation has abandoned the seventh-day Sabbath. They keep Sunday, some Religions around the world keep Wednesday or Thursday or whatever. And they say it doesn't really matter just so long as you keep one day. And then they don't even keep that day, most of them. They will make exceptions for whatever reasons and not spend even the day that they think they have made holy doing the things that God says here. But he made the seventh day holy. And it is a sign between him and his people. So what it means is that if you keep any other day than the weekly Sabbath, the seventh day of the week, you have departed from God, and you do not recognize him anymore as the creator. Now, is it any wonder that most of the American people have been led into believing evolution? Would that have been able to be pulled over our eyes had we been keeping the Sabbath as a people, as a nation? the way God says to do it. Because every Sabbath command, if you review them almost, mentions that he's the creator and the maker of the Sabbath. Let's go back to Genesis 1 just for a moment as a flashback here. I want to burn in a point a little bit more. And I think Herbert Armstrong was probably right here when you consider the scriptures we have just read, that in, seventh day he, in seven days he made the heavens and the earth. I think he was correct in saying, in a beginning, not in the beginning, in a beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, so it didn't have real shape, it didn't have, it was void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. So, all it was, apparently, on this day that he began his work was the deep. That can explain why you can go up to 14 or 16 or 18,000 feet and find fossils all over the place. Because it was buried under the deep. Now, had there been land before? Maybe there had. Maybe there was a great destruction. But what he started with here in his own words was a earth that was without form and void and it just had the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, so it was deep waters That's what the deep is referring to as defined by God himself here. And he said, let there be light and there was light. Someone was trying to answer the evolutionists and said, well, it said he created it in seven days, but it doesn't say how long the days were. Well, he created in those six days a lot of symbiotic relationships which have to have each other in order to survive and to exist. Animals cannot exist without plants. He created the plants first, then made the animals. And many of the plants cannot exist without the bugs and the insects and the bees and the various things. So if there were a long period of time in between, those relationships would not have been there and death would have occurred. Notice that on the sixth day, God made man. Now, if the creation week had been a thousand years to a day, How old would man have been before he even created the Sabbath? Already been a thousand years old. Or using that logic, maybe hundreds of millions of years old before the Sabbath ever came. Doesn't make a bit of sense, does it? Because God created everything around us in six days, including us. And then rested the seventh day. It should be very clear from the Scriptures that this was done in 24-hour periods. At first, he made light and dark, divided it, and then he set, I think it was the fifth day, sixth, fourth day, maybe it was, whatever day it was, toward the beginning, he made the heavens, the sun, and the moon. So they hadn't been there before. He made them. It says back here in these commands in Exodus 20 and 31, but he made the heavens and the earth and the sun and the moon and so on in that period of time how awesome is that we can barely make a mess in a week god made the heavens and the earth the sun the moon mankind and all that in 6 days you consider how much you get done in a week you see the, the point that God was making with Job? Where were you when I did this and this and this and this? What do you get done in a week, Job? We can run around down here for six days, and then we need to sit back and look at someone who could make a whole lot and do a whole lot in a week and did. How can you not respect and have reverence and awe for a being who could do everything around us? in that short a period of time. That's the God we want to be connected with. Let's go to Isaiah 45 to hit the highlights of a few scriptures today where God calls upon us to remember who he is. And these are the ones in particular that call upon him as the creator, the maker, and it, they are in an end-time context here is the reason I picked some of these particular ones, because this is an issue that he once brought out. Isaiah 45, this context is about uh, an end-time Cyrus who would come along that God would reveal certain things to. Not a man who knew God, not a man who understood God, not a man who believes that God can do great wonders and perform miracles, but someone who doesn't understand him, doesn't know him. It says twice here, you have not known me in Isaiah 45, verse uh, 5, and one other place here, verse 4 as well. It says twice, you've not known me. So he's going to use some man to do certain things about God, but this is a man who does not know God. Now, the reason he's doing this, he explains in verse 6, that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west, all the way around the world, that there is none beside me. I am the eternal and there is none else. It doesn't matter if you believe in Buddha or Gandhi or whatever god you want to pick, American idol. Any God you want to pick will not stand. God will stand. They're all going to know about him. Evolution's going out the window. There is none else. I form the light and create darkness. Now, he doesn't start way down the line with something he might have done. He said, we're going right back to the basics, people. You're going to know when this is done that I create miracles, that I bring something out of nothing, that I could create the whole environment around and this Gaia Mother Earth you worship in six days. You can pollute it all you want. I can fix it. I made it. Let's get straight here who's in charge, he says. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Eternal, do all these things. Did he create the evil with Job? Yes, he did. He didn't have to put boils on Job himself. He didn't have to send tornadoes. He sent the prince of the power of the air, who was eager to do that, to do it. But God is the one that instigated it, caused it to happen, He used an evil presence to go ahead and do it. But he is the one that holds the balance of whether there will be peace or whether there will be war and evil. Do you realize God could wipe out evil in one day so very easily? He wiped it out pretty quickly at the flood, didn't he? Didn't take long. Took a long time to build a boat, but it sure didn't take long to float it didn't take long to drown everybody on the earth. Now, he can make peace, or if we insist, he can bring evil just like that. So here in the end time, he's going to use someone to reveal hidden treasures, and he's going to cause those treasures to be able to be used to build a temple, to build Jerusalem, and the world is going to hate it. Now God and say, I can do these things, and the world will say, no, you cannot, and you will not, and we will win. And they will all be on Satan's side and try to defeat God. Now where do you want to be when this epic battle takes place? Do you want to be protected by God, or out there being killed by or joining with the world and Satan against God? I think that should become obvious but most people don't even have a clue that this is about to happen and what is going to occur. Verse 8. Drop down, you heavens, from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open, and let them bring forth salvation, and let righteousness spring up together. I, the Eternal, have created it. Now, all our... Righteousness is as filthy rags. We are altogether vanity at our very best state. So any righteousness that you and I may have is something that God began to do with us by opening our minds, didn't he? We were as carnal as a bedbug, to use the expression. I don't know how carnal bedbugs are, but they're certainly not godly. And they don't have any thought of God. We were out doing our thing. And some of us were religious, quote unquote, perhaps, but we didn't know the God of creation. Worshipped on Sunday, didn't we? Didn't know anything about a true God. He had to open our minds. We began to understand. Now the ones whose minds he opens, he is going to use to bring forth salvation. And help cause righteousness to spring forth. Now our challenge is this. We have to become righteous. We have to become like God. And as he says in Isaiah 54, the righteousness has to be of him. Because you and I cannot create or produce righteousness on our own. We have to go to the one who is righteous and receive his strength, his power, his ability to become that. Because our thoughts are from day to night altogether evil. And it's like it was before the flood with mankind. We're the only ones on earth, the church, who have been called out, who have been given a knowledge of the true God. How blessed we are. How incredible that is. How could we begin to take that for granted? How do I take it for granted on Wednesday, Monday, Thursday? But we do. We go through life doing our thing, and it's so easy to forget God our Creator and to go to Him daily in prayer and to study His Word and to try to understand it better so that we might someday help others understand it and turn to Him as well. He's calling upon us to do a work in the end that will show that He is God. Does the world see God in us? Woe to him that strives with his Maker. Now see, this is an end-time context of how God is going to begin to show himself at the end. Woe to him that strives or fights against his Maker, his Creator. Let the potsherds strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him that fashioned it, What are you making? Or your work, he has no hands? Does it make sense for something that's being built to throw rocks at its builder? Woe to him that says to his father, What begets you? Or to the woman, what have you brought forth? You're a human being born of man and woman. And yet we dishonor our fathers and mothers, don't we? What kind of an attitude is that? And yet we do the whole same thing with our Creator. Thus says the Eternal, the Holy One of Israel, and His Maker, the One who made Israel, Ask me of things to come concerning my sons and concerning the work of my hands, command you me. I am going to do this thing. Are you going to tell me what to do? Are you going to tell me what the rules ought to be or how you ought to act? What your personality should be? I have made the earth and created man upon it. I, even my hands, have stretched out the heavens, and all their hosts have I commanded. I have raised him up in righteousness, and I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city, and he shall let go my captives. Not for price nor reward, says the Eternal of Hosts. So God is going to use even Osiris of this world to help God's people. He has that capacity. I think it is interesting to consider that, that we are the ones that God has called out. We are the ones he has given his spirit to, the ones he's shown his truth. And yet, what are we capable of doing? And I think we're going through a period right now of, in a sense, helplessness, unable to do much. We've come, we're here, but not much is happening. And I think that is on purpose to test us, to try us, to humble us, to recognize that of ourselves we can do nothing. Christ had that attitude, didn't he? The Father does the works. I of myself can do nothing. He was the very Son of God. But as a human being, he was utterly helpless and said so. He was telling the truth. He couldn't do anything of import or value except through the Father. Because being made human, he was essentially helpless. He had no power except that given by the Holy Spirit And the power of God, still in heaven, is the only way he had any capacity to do anything. And we have to come to that same attitude as well. This is symbolized in repentance before baptism. Is that feeling of helplessness and hopelessness that of ourselves we are nothing and can do nothing, and therefore we are surrendering and committing ourselves to God. Now, we're, in a sense, going through that all over again right now. God wants a total commitment from each and every one of us because he is about to show the world that he is God and he's going to use human instruments to do it. But he is also going to use a man of the world who doesn't even know him to show that I'm God and I can do it even through a carnal, unconverted, lying, cheating fraud. But you can do nothing. I think that puts more into perspective what's happening right now. He wants us to know that he is God and that we can do nothing without him. We cannot question him. We cannot question his timing, his methods, his ways, or anything. He is God. Do we have a bone to pick with the one who made us? Do we have a bone to pick with our parents who begat us and raised us? Why do the Ten Commandments say, Honor your father and your mother that your days be long upon the earth? Because it is a symbol of recognizing that he is our father and our creator. And that we should honor him. And then we reach a certain point in our age, usually in the teenage years, if not when we're two or three, when we think we know more than they do, we're smarter than they are, and on ad nauseum it goes. And we enter into a rebellion. Now, it's not entirely just that. I understand we're beginning to grow up and we're beginning to think somewhat independently and beginning to find our own mind in our own way and there is a separation that has to occur between father and mother, and really and truly should. A man should leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they should start a new family and not be ruled over by their parents anymore. So there is a natural separation that occurs. But if it comes with a spirit of rebellion, that is not good. The honor should be there to father and mother, so that we might understand the relationship between our father in heaven and us. Just as our hearts need to be turned to our physical fathers and mothers, they need to be turned to the eternal Creator Father of heaven and earth. Everything will be given freely as Isaiah 54 says, when God begins to gather the faithful, the righteous to him, who have not bowed their knee to Baal uh, here in the end. And he will provide food and shelter and all those things without price or reward. It's all going to be freely given. Because God in heaven, at the same time the world is running out of food, they're running out of water, they're running out of everything to sustain life on earth, and they are at war among themselves and killing each other, God will be showing peace and giving to his people. Now, a laborer is worthy of his hire. And God said, if you don't work, you should not eat. Now, when those people come and gather before God to do his end-time work, they will have worked. They will have worked hard, day in and day out, six days a week, on growing, on overcoming, on changing, of being more like Christ every day. That takes hard work. And in working at that, God will give reward. So it won't be a welfare society, will it? You know, just show up and all your needs will be taken care of. Wonderful. It's not going to be like that. You and I right now are told to work. We're to work at being Christian, true Christians. And then we are to work to build his temple, both spiritually and I think physically as well. Because he needs a spiritual temple who looks to him, the creator in heaven, to show the world as a witness that he has got. But he has also shown that he has to have a physical temple built, which will be another witness to the world that the world will destroy and defile, and then he will turn the tribulation loose upon them. So both those things have to be done, and there has to be a people who recognize their Father in heaven and look to Him. Now, we're in a welfare society today where we look to Father government for sustenance. That will change. If we work hard now, we can look to our Father in heaven for sustenance and everything that we need. Says, Thus says the eternal, verse 14, The labor of Mithraim and the merchandise of Ethiopia and of the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you. We're going to be given the wealth of the world. We're going to rule over the earth, aren't we? A thousand years will reign on the earth. So all the things that man is building up in his material world and the riches that he thinks he has, we're going to be given the whole earth with all its resources and everything there for us to rule, to guide, to lead. And they shall be yours. They shall come after you. In chains they shall stand, uh, they shall come over, and they shall fall down to you. They shall make supplication to you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is none else. There is no God. Isn't that incredible? That the people of this earth are going to come to you and me. If we work now, and they're going to say, it's because of you, I know there is a God. We are his witnesses, it says back in chapter 41, that he is God, that he is the creator of heaven and earth, and there is no evolution. (coughs) Can we even begin to grasp, to comprehend, the awesomeness of the job God has called us to do. Look at us. I can look across this room. What do I see? This is a witness that God is God? Like a bunch of people to me. We're not much, are we? He has purposely chosen the weak and the base of this world. Those who have problems, who have weaknesses, those who have maybe not great intellects, maybe not beautiful, maybe not tall and handsome, maybe nothing that men would look to. How many of you are receiving calls every day from Hollywood? You haven't told me about it, PR. And I certainly haven't gotten one. Well, we're nothing to look at. We're nothing to look to. But it is going to be the glory of God working in us that makes this thing possible. And we have to get the picture now. It is for lack of vision the people perish. We have to see. We have to comprehend and understand what we are being called to do. It's such an awesome thing. You want your children to look to God? You want them to go His way instead of the world's way? Get the vision. Get the understanding. Show them these things. Help them see the picture of what is about to come and what's going to happen to the world that is so exciting and intriguing to them. And let them realize that there's something a whole lot better coming. Now they're going to learn it very shortly now, one way or another, aren't they? They're going to learn this world has nothing to offer. Let's show them something that is good, something that is important, something that will last something that will bring them peace and happiness and security and good families and marriages and so on. And it isn't far away. Truly you are a God that hides yourself, O God of Israel, the Savior. Now we know he's hidden from us and he's hidden from the world. The world knew him not, it says, of Christ and of the Father. They shall be ashamed and also confounded, all of them, we are going to put them to shame because of what God does through us. And it will confuse them and confound them. You know, they grew up in the Methodist, the Baptist, the Catholic, the Mormon Church, Buddhism, wherever. And all those things that they've been taught from babyhood, that they believe with all their hearts. They don't know how to believe anything else. It's going to be utterly confusing to them when things don't happen the way they thought it was going to happen. When their secret rapture turns out to be the secret rupture, it isn't going to happen the way they thought. Can you imagine the confusion? It shall go to confusion together that are makers of idols. But Israel shall be saved in the eternal with an everlasting salvation. You shall not be ashamed nor confounded, world without end. Now, they think we're crazy today, don't they? But God says we will not be ashamed or confused, confounded, world without end. You know, you can talk to people out here in this world, and they have their view of the way things are going to go. One will have this view, one will have another idea, another one has an idea of religion, and they all have their idea of who God is and how the world came to be and all this stuff. And when God makes his presence known, those who know him, who are familiar with his word, are not going to be confounded and confused. But the rest of them are. I talked to Mormons, I talked to one the other day, I said, I pointed out something in the Bible. Well, I've not read the Bible. The Book of Mormon is their Bible. That's what they go by. They say the Bible's okay as long as it fits with the Book of Mormon. they got everything all upside down. And do you think when these things that this book says start happening the way it says, and it's different than the Book of Mormon, they're going to be really, really frustrated, truly confused. Isn't it comforting for us to consider we will not be confused? We will not be confounded. We will not be frustrated. It will be happening just like God said. So we'll be the only people on earth who now know what's happening, how it's happening, why it's happening, and ultimately even when it is happening. And nobody else will have a clue. The only way they can find out is to come to us. But they won't come to us at that point. We will have to go to them. And we're going to have to tell them about the Creator God. We're going to have to tell them His ways. We're going to have to preach His word to them. And they will hate it with a passion and will turn in mass against us when we do it and try to kill us all. But God will protect us. We will not be confounded and confused. We will be protected. We will be helped. God will preserve us if we are counted worthy to escape these things. Now, do we see why we need to work? Why we need to be at it day in and day out? to become more Christ-like? Because we didn't start out that way, did we? And We haven't made as much progress as we would like to make, have we? We still have a long way to go. But it is our very weakness, it is our very problems, that will cause us to be usable. Now, when did God find Job usable? As a witness to you and me, and ultimately to the world, because Job's going to get preached to them too. When did God find Job usable? When Job had gotten rid of every shred of pride, of vanity, of ego, and came to recognize himself as utterly helpless. He wasn't proud of how he looked. He wasn't proud of how he his wealth. He wasn't proud of his children. He wasn't proud of his animals. He wasn't proud of where he lived or sat on his boils. He wasn't proud of anything. (laughs) He was abjectly humble at that point. Then what did God say? Okay, Job, I will fix this. I'll give you that. I'll give you this back. I'll make you an example that will be used forevermore throughout the history of mankind to show that if you will humble yourself before God, you will be blessed. And we have that example today. We read it a few weeks ago to show what kind of attitude we need to come to have so that we're usable by God to be witnesses to the world that God is God. That's what he's doing with us. I hope, my brothers and sisters, that he does not have to reduce us to what he did, Job. I hope we do not have to lose everything we have. Jobs, food, marriage relationships, children, animals, everything, before we are humbled before His throne. That's the only way that we can become usable to Him and worthwhile to Him and His purposes at the end. Now, He's given us all these examples. Hebrews 11 goes back and reiterates all this. The faithful ones that he can now point to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, those people of the past who humbled themselves before God. Moses became the meekest man on earth, didn't he? They humbled themselves before God. And now they are held up as shining examples to us of people who will be in the kingdom of God as rulers in the world tomorrow. Did Peter, James, John, Jude, all those men, start out as pillars of spiritual strength? How did they start out? They started out as tax collectors, fishermen. Tax collectors are odious to virtually everyone, are they not? Fishermen stink. I've been around them, been one. They say it doesn't smell like fish, it smells like money. But they're wrong. It smells like fish. God did not take wonderful leaders. He just took common, everyday people. Christ did. call them His disciples. And they were unfaithful. They were untrue. They denied Him at the drop of a hat. They were unrighteous. They did the wrong things at the wrong time. And then he gave them his spirit, and they began to grow. and They began to overcome. They changed their whole approach to life. They began to recognize God and where the spirit of power came from. And those fishermen and tax collectors came to stand up before God, willing to be killed if necessary, and it was with them, as witnesses that God was God, and that Christ had been God on earth. So they went from nothing to powerful examples who will rule over the twelve tribes of Israel in the world tomorrow. Their job, their salvation is secure, and we've already been told that because God wants us to be encouraged. Some of us weren't any better. None of us were any better than those men were before they received God's Spirit. We were just everyday people. Now those whom God chooses this end time are not going to be martyred. They do not have to die. Because this is the last round. This is the end of it all. This is when God Almighty is going to send His Son to the earth to prove that God is God. And we will be his witnesses of whom he is. And he will put us in a place on a hill in the heights of Zion to be an example to the world that God is God and that he can save us from the death and destruction that is going to go on on this earth. And we don't have to die at the end of that, most of us, because we'll be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. So in the past, the people of God have had to die. Here, he wants us to live as a witness and an example. And the rapture will not be secret. When he returns, every eye will see him, and his righteous holy ones will rise in the air to meet him and go on a honeymoon, a marriage and a honeymoon with him, and come back a year later to rule the earth in peace and prosperity. What a wonderful picture it is. We'll see how that ties to the Sabbath more and more as we go on. Because this day, today, is a memorial of creation and that God is God. The Sabbath isn't just any day of the week. It's on the seventh day because it's an important day. And the preachers say, well, I recognize, and a lot of them do, and I've heard them say it, I know the Saturday is the Sabbath of the Bible, but people are so used to Sunday that if I preach that and open the doors on Saturday and go there and preach, they won't come to church, and they won't put their money in the kitty. So I will preach on Sunday. They're hypocrites. They're liars. And people come and put their money in on Sunday and it will gain them nothing, nothing at all. Let's go to chapter 46. Um, Here he starts talking about the gods of this world and how they are wearisome, They stoop and bow down together. They could not deliver the burden, but themselves are gone into captivity. Hearken to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, which are born by me from the belly, which are carried from the womb. He is the one that created the capacity, the ability for children to be born. People say, well, God doesn't do magic. God doesn't do miracles. How miraculous is it that two human beings that are quite different in many respects can come together and produce a child that has little fingers and hands and feet and a brain and a head and a body just like them, only just a little bitty thing. And then if you stuff stuff in it, it begins to grow and get bigger, and first thing you know, it's just as big as you are and looks a lot like you. Poor thing. Incredible, isn't it? Isn't that a miracle? Listen to me. I'm the one that did all this, God says. And even to your old age, I am he. Even to your gray hairs will I carry you. I have made and I will bear. Even I will carry and will deliver you. And he uses birth is a symbol of how he will deliver us. And here we are, straining as a woman in travail, he says, in several places. And it's hard, and it's painful, and it's difficult. And we wish it would be over. But until Christ is made in us, it isn't over. We will struggle until Christ is born in us. The man-child lives through us. And then the struggle will end. Boy, is it hard to grow up. Any of you who've ever tried to do it, you know what I'm talking about. I'm still working on it. To whom will you liken me and make me equal? And compare me that we may be like. There's nothing like God. He showed it to Job. He's showing it to you and me. And pretty soon he's going to show it to the whole world. Go to chapter 51 of Isaiah. Now here is a call to the end-time church. He tells us in verse 2, well he says in verse 1, hearken to me, you that follow after righteousness. Follow after is an interesting term there. Those of us us who are chasing it, uh, we're following, we're trying to be righteous. You that seek the eternal. says, Now listen, you who are seeking the eternal. That would be you and me. He's talking directly to us here. Look to Abraham your father and to Sarah that bore you, for I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. He says, look to Abraham. Before we got to this series, we went back and had a long series on Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and our fathers in the faith and our fathers, physically, of Israel, to look at them, to see what they did, to see what their demeanor, their attitudes, their approach to life was, didn't we? So he tells us that, and I think this is where I even started that series, if I remember correctly. tells us to look to Abraham and to Sarah. "'For the Eternal shall comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places.'" And he will make her wilderness like Eden, and her desert like the garden of the eternal. Joy and gladness shall be found therein, thanksgiving and the voice of melody. So he points back and says, didn't I tell Abraham to go look for a city? Didn't I tell Abraham I would bless him if he would obey me? Didn't Abraham vow and commit to me and give one-tenth of everything that he had or earned or came by to me so he would show his honor, his commitment to me. Didn't I do those things? Well, I'm the same one, he says, who comes to you at the end time, and I say, I'm going to do these things for you. Now, Abraham was the father of the faithful, and that's why God tells us, you go look at Abraham, you look at what Abraham did, and you be like he was. Because if you're like he was, then here's what I'm going to do for you. We have that history. We've already been there. Hearken to me, my people, and give ear to me, O my nation, for a law shall proceed from me, and I will make my judgment to rest for a light of the people. So he's going to give a garden of Eden, a garden of God, and a rest for his people, and for a light to the rest of the world. My righteousness is near. My salvation has gone forth. My arm shall judge the people. The coast shall wait upon me, and on my arm shall they trust. Lift up your eyes to the heavens, and look upon the earth beneath. It says, look at all this that I have created, and what a wonderful world it is that he made it, it's here, it's for us to observe and see, and he says, the heaven shall vanish away like smoke and the earth shall wax old like a garment. So the earth is going to look awful. You know how a piece of clothing looks before you finally throw it away? It might be your favorite piece of clothing, you hate to get rid of it, but man, when it gets so tattered and so torn, threadbare and holes in it, uh, You finally dump it. Or you go to Walmart and buy one just like it. Already got holes in it. Where does that come from? That's weird. They that dwell therein shall die in like manner, but my salvation shall be forever, and my righteousness shall not be abolished. Mankind stands against God, denies God, won't admit there is a God, believes in some stupid thing like slime crawling out of the water instead of believing that there's a creator God. Well, this Mother Earth they worship is going to get real old-looking right in their face. Is the Gulf of Mexico beginning to look pretty old before our very eyes? Is it a beautiful place to go? I remember walking on the sands and the beaches of Florida and Mississippi and Alabama, the Gulf Coast, and that quartz-like, pure white sand that's scrunched under your feet when you walked on it, and now it's got tar balls and oil all over it. Looking kind of old, isn't it? This is only the beginning. It's going to get worse. Well, that one's getting worse day by day, isn't it? going to get a whole lot worse. Oh, they want us to worship the Mother Earth. And I think we're getting right down to it here. Because this new world order that is coming, this new world governance that is fast taking shape before our very eyes, will cause man to look to the earth to worship it. That's what this environmental movement is all about, this global warming idiocy and everything that is going on is designed to get us to worship the earth and the pollution that they are creating on the earth, and it would not surprise me in the least, that the mess in the Gulf of Mexico was planned on purpose because they're going to be able to point out the earth is casting us out. We have to worship it. We have to take care of it. We have to look to it as our mother. We have to worship it. And God at the same time is saying, I created heaven and earth. I am God. And he has placed the church today spiritually as our mother, not the earth. But what God would the whole earth begin to worship? The one they live on. That's the God that they can use. And Satan rules it right now. So even as they pollute it, they can begin to say, you're going to have to look to us because we're the only ones that can restore it and make it good for you. So here's another great deception of Satan. God tells us here it's going to look old and be cast away as a garment and the people will die. And that he will recreate it. He will remake it. He will make it peaceful and a wonderful place to be again. He can do that. The rulers of this earth cannot do that. God says, Woe to those who pollute that which I have made, speaking of the earth in the book of Revelation. Hearken to me, not to Mother Earth, you that know righteousness. The people in whose heart is my law, verse 7. Fear you not the reproach of men, neither be you afraid of their revilings. Don't worry about people. Don't worry about men. Don't worry about armies. I will take care of you. Do you believe that? Now, a lot of Americans say, you'll take my gun out of my cold, dead fingers. Does God want us to get our guns and go shoot at them when they come? Now, did Christ, did Peter, did James, did John the Baptist? No, they didn't shoot back. They didn't go to war against it. <laughs> you think Remington or Winchester can save you? Come on, get real. It's going to have to be God who takes us out of it. He doesn't say fight even when they come to take his temple in Jerusalem. He says flee to the mountains. I will take care of you. All right, we build back the walls of Jerusalem. We're going to grab guns and stand behind it. They got helicopters and planes and bombs and all kinds of stuff. What a futility. Now, if you don't know God, I guess you would look to those things for protection. You had to protect yourself. Good luck. If you know God, you obey him. He says, I will protect you. Don't worry about it. For the moth shall eat them up like a garment. The men of this world and their armies are going to be just like moths in your closet. And the worm shall eat them like wool. But my righteousness shall be forever, and my salvation from generation to generation. So he says, wake up, wake up, put on strength, O arm of the eternal, awake as in the ancient days and the generations of old. Remember the things he did? Red Sea, Jordan River, on and on it goes. He cut the dragon. Are you not it which has dried the sea, the waters of the great deep, that has made the depths of the sea a way for the ransom to pass over? Here's the God we want to worship, the one who could do the Red Sea, the one who can turn one small part of the earth back to a Garden of Eden, where his people will be taken care of and have food because they've already worked, and they're going to have rest from that work. A mini-millennium, a mini-Sabbath or rest will come on God's people, while the rest of the world is destroyed. What does it say? Verse 11, Therefore the redeemed of the eternal shall return and come with singing to Zion, and everlasting joy shall be upon their head. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and mourning shall flee away. So they're going to have a happy, peaceful, physical existence for a short while, followed by a resurrection to spiritual existence, and rebuild the earth. So once God turns his face on those people... It will never turn away again. They won't have to die like people of the past have had to die, except the last two at the end. The rest will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. I, even I, am he that comforts you. Who are you that you should be afraid of a man that shall die and of the Son of Man which shall be made as grass? Isn't that what he tells us in Isaiah 8? Don't be afraid of the conspiracy. Do you, brethren, fear what is coming? God tells us not to. Be aware of it. Fear Him and begin to do the things He says so that you can be kept out of it. But don't fear it. What is there to fear? If God before us, who can be against us? If we fear the new world order, and what is coming down, and its armies, and the invaders that are coming into this nation, then we are misplacing our fear. It is not to be fear of an unrighteous government of either our nation or the world. It is to be a fear of God. He is the only one who can save. Who are you to fear man? Verse 13, And forget the eternal your maker that has stretched forth the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. There's where to look. Look to your creator. If he could make the heavens and the earth, and he could design Adam and Eve out of red dirt, or her out of his rib, make them from scratch, Didn't need a recipe. He had that all figured out way ahead of time. Just put them together in one day. What can an army of man do against you if he's on your side? He made you. Surely he can preserve you. Yeah, these things are coming, and over 90% of the people on earth are going to die in the next few years. But you don't have to if you will trust God. He's showing us a way of escape here. You forget God and have feared continually every day because of the fury of the oppressor? We don't have time to waste worrying about those people coming and invading us and killing us. We have a work to do. And right now, he is humbling us He is putting us through trials and tests and troubles and testing us to see if we will be faithful or if we will give up or get discouraged or quit. He's letting us go through some trials and tests, isn't he? With our health, with our wealth, with all those things that people hold dear. And he's going to find out ones that he can trust and use as his witnesses to the whole world. Where is the fury of the oppressor? Verse 14, the captive exile, case that he may be loosed, and that he should not die in the pit, nor that his bread should fail. People are all worried about what's going to happen with everything that's coming. How are we going to save ourselves? Well, you can't, that's all. Now, we can put back food, and I think it's a wise thing to do. We can put back a little bit of wealth if we can, and it might help us for a while. But all these people that are storing up food, what's going to happen to all that food? Well, their neighbors are going to come in and shoot them and take their food. That's what's going to happen to it. Or the government will come and confiscate it and say, you're hoarding. Therefore, you deserve to die, bang, and take their food. There is no way that you can save yourself with what's about to come. Now, we can store up in case there's a period of time in between where we need to do those things. Even as Joseph saved up in the time of of slavery about to come, the time of drought and famine to come, and it got them through seven years of drought, very short period of time. <coughs> but who did it take to get them out of the mess they came to be in? Could they save enough food and wealth to get them through those years and help them escape from Egypt? No. God had to deliver them had to deliver them with a mighty hand. I am the Eternal, your God, verse 15, that divided the sea, whose waves roared. The Eternal of hosts is his name. And I have put my words in your mouth, and I have covered you in the shadow of my hand, that I may plant the heavens and lay the foundations of the earth and say to Zion, You are my people. He is going to lay a foundation with his people here at the end, in a garden of Eden as a witness to the world, and he is going to remake the earth. They're going to be worshiping Mother Gaia, the earth, and he who is God is going to recreate a small part of it and make it like it was as an example that you don't worship the earth, you worship the one who made it and can fix it. I used to wonder... Years and years ago, what would be the message of the two witnesses? Would they just go around and say, you're all sinners? Better repent? I think now as we begin to understand these things, I understand the message better. When we understand what God is going to do, there is so much to say to this world. So much to tell them. There is so much there will be so much to point to and say, look, you're worshiping the wrong God. Forget Al Gore and what's going on with the dude and worship God in heaven. This earth can't save you. It's in convolution before you. God is going to use the very God they worship to destroy them. The earth is going to vomit them out. Tornadoes, earthquakes, volcanoes, oil erupting in the oceans, destroying life, wars, people who were born on the face of this earth and didn't trust God. Their own God, Satan, the God of this world, the God of this earth, is going to destroy them before our very eyes. And what a message it will be to be able to point to you and those thousands who come and join you, I hope, and say, God is preserving them. God has recreated the earth. He's cleaned it up. He's taken away the pollution and the briars and the thorns and too much sun. sun's going to get seven times hotter, the book of Revelation says, on men on this earth. But he's going to put a canopy over as a protection from the heat, he says in Zechariah 2, and a wall of fire or defense around his people so that nothing can hurt them. Where do you want to be when this all comes down? Now, he's saying that he himself is going to wake up, going to get up and do his work, and that we need to wake up and be ready to do his work too. He's preparing us, brethren. I don't think we're ready yet. He has not healed our sicknesses, gotten rid of our infirmities. Now he does some. We see his hand now and then intervening, and it's encouraging. But he hasn't done it on a wholesale level yet. He's waiting for the right moment. And he's waiting until our minds and our emotions are prepared for it. And then it's going to happen. And we will be a witness to the whole world that their way of healing is wrong. Their way of living, their way of eating, their way of going about life is wrong. And if you want to be blessed, you have to do it this way. Do you see why we are so important? We're not important because of what we are. We're important because if we will follow him and obey him, he can use us as an example to the world. You know what God's looking for, people? He's looking for an Abraham. He's looking for a Sarah. He's looking for an Isaac and a Jacob and a Joseph. He's looking for a Peter and a Paul and a James and a John and a Jude. He's looking for a Stephen and a Philip. He's looking for some of the lesser names that Paul mentioned who were faithful. He's looking for people who will stand up for God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. And he refers us back to his creation and his ability to create over and over. And he's going to show in you that he can recreate, he can redo, he can remake and restore it to just what it was before Satan got hold of Adam and Eve. He wants us to be like Adam and Eve were before Satan influenced them. That's the challenge. That's what he's looking for. We have to get the vision. We have to understand. We set our own standards. We think, well, I'm a little better than I was 10 years ago. Is that enough? He sent Christ, who never sinned, once in his entire life, to die that my sins and yours might be wiped out. We would never, ever be the witnesses to God that he needs, if it weren't for that sacrifice. Because just like the world around us, we would have to die for our own sins. Now, he expects us to work, he expects us to produce fruits, but he knows that he is also going to have to forgive us because we're never going to be able to get it perfectly right. And we can be so thankful that his mercy endures forever. It never ends. Let's at least close out Isaiah today by going to chapter 66. Thus says the Eternal, the heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Doesn't amount to much, a footstool. You can kick it around. You can move it where you want it. You can set it where it's more comfortable. You can rest your feet on it, clean or dirty, if you're a human being and you have a footstool. A footstool is just something that's handy for something a whole lot more intelligent, bigger, and more capable than it is to use as a tool for the owner's purpose. Where is the house that you build to me, and where is the place of my rest? Questions? For all those things is my hand made, and all those things have been, says the Eternal. What, what are you going to do for me? What, what do you have that's so great? I made the earth and I rest my feet on it. And you're down there crawling around on it and think you're such a much. Isn't this the same thing he was saying to Job? You really aren't much. I made all those things. They've been. Now, who am I going to look to on the earth? Who is going to impress me, God says? Am I going to be impressed with Bill Gates as billions? Am I going to be impressed with the leaders of Congress in the United States of America? Am I going to be impressed with Hitler or Obama? Who am I going to be impressed with? Some become really adept at it. It's real easy to do. God says don't do that. When we sin or think about sinning, does it scare us? Do we tremble at the word of God? If we watch a movie that has sin in it, does it scare us, or do we sort of sit back and enjoy it? God looks to people that are not proud, they're not vain, of their looks, their intelligence, their wealth where they're from or where they're going or anything else on this earth. God looks to him that is humble and trembles at his word. Verse 22, for as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, he's going to recreate this earth, he's going to clean it up and take all the pollution out shall remain before me, says the Eternal, so shall your seed and your name come uh, remain. I created it in the first place, and now you've wrecked it and ruined it and worshipped it instead of me, and it's just my footstool. Come on. Why would you worship something I made? Worship me who made it. And those of you who will listen to me, I'm going to recreate it and remake it for you. I'm going to do a small part of it around Zion for a short period to show the rest of the world what can be done. And once they are humble and contrite and have gone through death and destruction, the ones that remain and are saying, oh my God, and meaning it instead of cursing, I will look to. And then I'm going to start resurrecting them at the end of that thousand years. And I'm going to show them a beautiful world. I'm going to say, you know who did that? I did that. You know what you did to the one that was here when you died? It's not here anymore, is it? Now you are ready to do it my way? All he's looking for, for is some people do it his way. That's all he wants. People that will do it his way. Are we ready to do it his way? Man, woman, and child, are you ready to do it his way? Even a child is known by the things that he does and the attitude he has. And even he is told, or she, to honor their parents that their days may be long upon the earth. We're all told, honor your Father in heaven, that your days may be forever upon the earth. I want God to look to you and me. I want him to look down on this earth and say, there's people right there that impress me. They're humble, they're meek, they're serving, they're giving, they're loving. They don't think they're important in their own eyes. And they tremble at my words. See, that's what the church didn't do. We were just going along... We've got to do the work, and we're going to be taken out of here, and everything's going to be just fine. But we allowed all kinds of sin and wretchedness in our lives, the stuff we took in from radios and televisions and records and movies and stuff. And we vicariously lived the lives of those people who were sinning because that was an entertainment and our enjoyment. And he's looking for people who will turn from that and turn to him and tremble at even watching or seeing the things that they do in secret instead of putting it on a big screen and watching it or turning on music and listening to it. He hates sin. He wants us to hate sin and tremble at his law. And then we will impress him. That's the only thing that impresses him. If you want to turn, want God, if you want to impress God, he tells you how to do it. Turn to him with all your heart, and all life will become a blessing. Look to the one who made earth, not to the people and the things on the earth that are ungodly, that are so impressive to us. Look to him who is able to make it and sets his feet on it and says, it isn't such a big deal. Is it? I'm the big deal. Is it any wonder, he said, that at the end, we would need to turn our hearts to our Father and our fathers? Because he holds them up in Hebrews 11 as the ones who are faithful to him, who did everything he said to do. And we're to look to them and to him. Then... We impress him and he can use us to show the rest of the world. We've got a big challenge here. But I'm trying to expand our minds and our hearts and our vision to understand what it is that God needs done and what we need to be to be able to do what he wants done. Let's stop for today.